0: Listening to the venue podcast. The venue is a worship gathering of Southcrest Baptist Church. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at Southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Morning. How's everybody doing? Okay. I like it. I feel the energy. I like it. Hey, everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah? It was good. Uh, Shay's uh, mom was in town, and she flew in from Florida, and she got to spend Thanksgiving with us. Uh, my wife, she's a nurse, but she had to work on Thanksgiving, so we, of course, went to Cracker Barrel the night before to celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, but it was fun, and uh, my, my wife's mom, my mother-in-law, Miss Laura, she actually flew back to Florida um, on Friday, and she took she took… We allowed her to take um, our son Lincoln and our daughter Ivy, our two youngest, because we're going to fly home to Florida in a couple weeks for Christmas. So we're going to have some time to relax before, <laughs> in the next couple weeks without all three kids. So it'll be a good time um, spending with my daughter uh, Everly and my wife these next couple weeks, kind of getting to relax. So I definitely have a lot to be thankful for in this season. I appreciate Brandon allowing me to to speak this morning. Uh, giving him a little break, time with the family as well. Uh, I don't know if he's watching online. Let's be honest, he's probably watching the other service online. But if he's watching, appreciate it, Brandon. Um, But we're going to continue our sermon series this morning. If you've been here, we've been going through a sermon series called The Book, where we kind of just preach through um, the Old Testament, or really the whole Bible, but right now we're going through the Old Testament. And last week, Brandon was in the book of Ezra, And this morning we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. It was funny, I was doing some some studying on this, and I think a lot of scholars actually pronounce his name Nehemiah, but we're in the South, so I'm just going to say Nehemiah because that's how how we all say it, right? So we're going to call it that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the the back of the uh, chair in front of you. It should be actually the ESV version, which is what I'll be preaching from this morning. As you're turning there, uh, as I was studying uh, this week to, to in this text and just thinking about what I wanted to preach from this book, um, where I kind of wanted to land, um, it was an interesting week of studying and preparation. And honestly, up until last night, I kind of had this idea where I wanted to go, but God was kind of working on my heart and uh, and leading me in personal revival, if you will and which is really interesting uh in the book of nehemiah uh, but it was it's just so cool to as i'm as I'm studying and preparing for this what what God laid on my heart and so really up until last night and this morning um, i'm gonna kind of shift a little bit from what I was preparing now i'm still gonna we're still going to cover uh, an overview of Nehemiah. I'm going to give you your four application points. So, Brandon, you can't fire me. I'm still going to preach from Nehemiah, um, but um, we're going to end, the, end things a little different this morning. I've my heart just kind of been stirred last night and this morning to just do something that I feel uh, really what the the Lord and the Holy Spirit laid on my heart, and um, I'm excited, but I'm kind of nervous about it, but. You'll see when we get there, I'm trying to build some tension now, but um, we know that the Lord can do a great thing through His Word. Uh, let me pray real quick, and then we'll dive into His Word this morning. God, um, we know that You inhabit the praises of Your people, and that You meet with us. And so God, I pray right now that as we study Your Word, that Your Word for truth would land on fertile hearts this morning, that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be attentive to what you have to say to us this morning, and that you would uh, revive our hearts, God, that we would find um, your mercies renewed this morning, um, and that we would uh, rest in that. And so we pray that as long as you can do, God, that you would speak through your word. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So here's what I'm going to do, because I'm kind of shifting gears a little bit. Uh, we're going to kind of do an airplane ride, if you will, and do a 30,000-foot view looking down at the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to kind of go through the book. We're going to talk a little bit about it, and then I'm going to give you uh, the good Southern Baptist four, four points, uh, application points, that you can take away from this with you. Uh, but then we're going to land the plane a little different than what we normally do. Y'all ready for that? Everybody Good. Everybody awake? Sweet. I'm going to quickly uh, try to go through the book of Nehemiah. Um, many of y'all probably know this story pretty well. Um, maybe you don't. So I'm going to kind of just give you an overview of the book. We're going to talk a little bit about the life of Nehemiah and, and kind of what he accomplished, what God accomplished through him. Um, and then we're going to um, do some, some do something cool at the end. So, but— Let's get some context first. I always like to, when I'm jumping into a book, especially of the Old Testament, I want to give context, kind of where we're at now, because really the book of Nehemiah and Ezra really in, in the original manuscripts was actually one book, it was written by Ezra, and Ezra's writing about the life of Nehemiah from his account and his first-person view, if you will, um, but since it's been, it's been separated, but these books fall really at the end of the Old Testament, if you're going to put it in chronological order, uh, right before Malachi. Um, but, of course, it's, it's earlier here because they separate the Old Testament by genres and by lengths of books. So, um, but a lot has happened to get to this point. A lot has happened. So let me just give you a brief uh, historical context, if you will. I think it's always good to just refresh that, um, just to get kind of get an idea of what is going on in not only Nehemiah's life, but also the people around him and what God is doing uh, in and through his people. Uh, so I'm going to start back in Genesis. We, we know God creates heaven and earth, creates man and woman, uh, and then right into it, chapter three, we see the fall, uh, we see God separated. In Genesis 12, we see that God calls Abram to, to leave his country and to follow him to another land, and then Abraham obeys, and uh, God multiplies His descendants, that's a promise, a covenant that he had with with Abraham. Then we see the Israelites were later enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years until God called them out uh, under the leadership of Moses, uh, rescuing them from enslavement, if you will. So eventually we see then they entered the land that God had promised them, the land of Canaan. Uh, And then once they're there, hundreds of years pass and, and the nation of Israel, during this time, they experience struggles, faithful, faithlessness, and wrestling with God. You see this cycle, and we've already read through some of it already. The cycle of, of chasing after false idols and the things of the world. And then God sending someone to, to call them back to himself. And it's this, this, this cycle, if you will. It's gone on for hundreds of years. Uh, if you really look at the, the history of Israel, the high point... Uh, would probably be when David became king. He was a godly king. He was on the throne. And for 40 years, David, he expanded the nation, um, not only geographically, but also influenced in the knowledge of God. And then things went downhill after that, of course. Uh, After his son, uh, King Solomon died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. We have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, we see these 10 tribes in the southern kingdom We see uh, two tribes known as Judah, the southern kingdom. And of course we see the northern kingdom, they go back to this cycle of of running from God, turning to the world. So God, in his sovereignty, allows them to be taken over by the Assyrians. Um, And you're like, wow, that's crazy. But then the southern kingdom, knowing and this is taking place and seeing this, they do the exact same thing, and they are taken over uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, you, many of y'all know King Nebuchadnezzar and that whole story with Daniel, old Nebi, as the high schoolers we like to call him, we just went through a sermon series in Daniel. Uh, and so, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they captured the Jews, they exiled them, and Jerusalem at a time was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, the city laid in waste, and in rubble the temple was burned, the people were deported and they were forced into slavery again. But God did not forsake his people. He allowed the Persians then to take over the Babylonians, and he moved in the heart of King Cyrus to make a decree that to let some of the Jews return back to their homeland. And we talked about this last week in Ezra. But really, you see this, this exile to return back to Jerusalem from this decree from King Cyrus. You see this really in three stages. Um, and, um, sorry, sorry. <clears throat> Let me find my place. Oh, in three stages, and, and it was over, really, the period was over about 100 years. They were a hundred years. They were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, um, and of course they discovered that their city was in ruin. It was demolished. It was desolate. Uh, about 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah. The first leader was Zerubbabel, uh, which Brandon mentioned a little bit last week, and he began rebuilding the temple. Of course, there was hardship. There was opposition to rebuilding that. Um, and they got discouraged, they quit, and God sent them these prophets in Haggai and Zechariah, which is later in Scripture, which we'll get to one day, Lord willing, and they helped encourage them to finish the project, finish the work that the Lord has started in them uh, and use them to do. And then we see Ezra comes on the scene, he's a a scribe, he knows God's Word, and he helps restore this this spiritual uh, fervor, if you will, among the people in the rebuilding of the temple. And that's where we really pick up here um, with Nehemiah, right after all this has taken place. So that the temple has been built, uh, God's kind of restoring his people, God's rebuilding his people, uh, as we mentioned last week, with, with Ezra, and we pick up in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, say that three times fast, um, here in Nehemiah. So I'm going to give you a, 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 if I could break this book down, if you will, in three different ways, in three words, if you will, it'd be this. Rebuilding, reviving, and resettling. Rebuilding, reviving, and resettling. That's what we're going to see throughout these 13 chapters of Nehemiah. So let's dive into it. Again, we're in the plane. We've already made our ascent. We're doing well. We're doing good. I gave you some historical context. So now we're going to look at this book from a 30,000-foot view, if you will, okay? So, Nehemiah 1, verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, it's a cool name, said, Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which, by the way, Kislev uh, would really be, uh, in, in, in this day, November, December, so really about right now, about where we would be kind of putting up your Christmas lights and stuff like that. They didn't have Christmas lights then, obviously. They weren't celebrating Christmas because Christ hasn't came yet. Um, That's a whole other thing. But, so it's about November, December. And it happened in the month of this, in the 20th year. This is from from Nehemiah's account. Remember, this is Ezra writing from Nehemiah's account. And he says this, And I was in Susa, the capital that Hananiah, one of my brothers, he came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So this is, let's paint a little picture. So he's standing there hanging out. This is Nehemiah. By the way, he is uh, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, he's a cupbearer. So he's really close with the king. A cupbearer was simply someone who was kind of like a uh, secret service, if you will, to the king. His job was to taste The wine and the food before it made it to the king so that if anyone tried to get crazy and tried to poison the king, it would not make it to the king. Uh, Nehemiah would would take one for the team, okay? Now, to be in this position, by the way, um, you had to be someone who was good in politics, who was good in conversing, who was trustworthy and faithful, who was good-looking. So I think about uh, Brandon Hayes. Just think the opposite of him, and you get Nehemiah, okay? I'm just kidding, he's not here, so I, can, I had to throw one in there on him. Um, but Nehemiah, he's an in exile in this, in this land. And just like Daniel, if you read through Daniel, uh, and then the, the exiles, God gave them favor. He gave them a, a, a wisdom. He, he sovereignly placed them as missionaries, if you will, in this exile land. And he's using them. And so Nehemiah is is really next to the king. He has an important, good job, if you will. It's a good job if people like the king. Okay. So he's standing there. He's 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 just hanging out day to day, and he sees his brother, uh, this friend, if you will, who had been back to Jerusalem during this during this uh, migration back to Jerusalem. And he just says, "Hey, what's 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 the word back home? You know, what's the news?" back home in town if you could so he, he says this to me after he asked that he says this in verse 3 it says the remnant there in the province who had survived exile was in great trouble and shame the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire he's like hey what's going on back home he's like man it's not good things aren't looking good the, the temple has been rebuilt, but everywhere else around the city, the walls that are there to protect the city, that are there to, um, to, to not only protect the city, but in, in those people's eyes, it was to show that whenever there was a kingdom who had these great walls, it was so that their God was powerful. So there was a lot of shame from um, the Israelites. Their, their city was destroyed. They had no walls to protect it so he gives him the news and then look what happens in verse four. Look at Nehemiah's response to that. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we see already, he gets news that the walls are destroyed. Now keep in mind, he, he was born in exile. He's never seen Uh, Jerusalem, he's never seen his homeland all he he just hears that the walls are destroyed and it moves him so much that he begins to weep and to mourn and and, and to fast and to immediately start praying and we see if you keep reading that he starts praying he starts confessing sin of his people he asks God to use him as a servant and he starts getting in this idea that he wants to do something about it he, he doesn't want to just sit by while nothing is being done. He wants to do something about it, and so he starts praying. This is a good rule of thumb for us, too. Kind of what he did here, he sat down and wept, he knelt down and prayed, and then he stood up and went to work. Stood up, went to work. Knelt down and prayed, stood up, went to work. So in chapter 2 we pick up, this is four months later. It says it's in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. So this is four months later. He's been fervently praying to God for four months that God would send him back to help rebuild these walls. Four months later, I don't know about y'all, but I don't know if I've ever prayed that long about something. Four months? So he starts praying four months later, and God finally answers his prayer. So he's standing there doing his normal duties, and the king notices that he's not his normal self. He kinda, he's kind of just sad, if you will. And so the king asks, hey, what's going on? And so he tells the king what's on his heart, which, by the way, this was a big deal. He could have he been killed for doing this because in uh, this time, his job was to make, always make the king happy, always make the king happy. Um, so he, he didn't want to like, show his cards and show his sadness and all that, um, but, look, but look what he did. Um, again before, he, before he's requesting this. In verse 4 he says this, the king said to me, what are you requesting? So what do you want? And look what he did. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So the king asked him, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? What, what can I do for you? And the first thing he did, he prayed again. It's important. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 21, 1, which says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. So he said a quick prayer, because when you kneel before the king of kings, the king of heaven, you can stand before any king on earth. When you kneel before the king of heaven, you can stand before the king on earth. And God is ultimately sovereign in all things, and he turns the hearts of the kings in any way that he wills. That's good stuff. So... Artaxerxes grants him his wish and he returns to Judah and becomes governor as you keep reading in chapter 2 and it's interesting he didn't get back to, uh, to Judah and be like alright I'm here I'm the governor the king sent me I'm going to rebuild this wall let's, let's do it right he went there and the first thing he did, it's always interesting to me the first thing he did was he kind of laid low and he waited till night and he went at night when there wasn't a lot of people and this is what he did he kind of just surveyed the wall he just looked at it and he, he put a plan in place. He, he, he wasn't, he didn't come there saying, look at me, look what I'm doing, look, at, God has sent me, the king has sent me. He got a plan going and then he rallies the people. He gets a plan, he rallies the people, he's, he, he starts crying out to the people, hey, we need to rebuild this wall. so He, he starts encouraging people to give their money, their, their tools, their time. Really, uh, if, if you're in any form of leadership, by the way, this is a great book or example um, to, to preach on leadership and some, some awesome leadership skills from Nehemiah. Um, that's, that's beside the point. But I just want to throw that out there. So, but things are going well in chapter two. He gets these people, they start rebuilding the wall. And then, as, of course, as soon as all these things start going well, what we see in Scripture and in life, I would even say, is opposition already takes place. And we're introduced to uh, three men who are uh, opposing what he's doing. We have uh, Sam Ballot. Just, yeah, that sounds right. Tobiah and Geshem, and they start opposing his work. They're just, you're not going to do it. What are you doing? Uh, just, just opposing everything that he's doing. That's just like in life. If you start doing things for the Lord, you need to expect opposition. Okay. So in chapter three, they begin rebuilding the wall, and I love this chapter because uh, if you just read it, you're like, okay, that's Pretty cool chapter, some cool things going on. But what you see in this chapter, in chapter 3, they begin rebuilding, but there's this phrase that's used over 16 times in chapter 3, and it's this word, next to. Next to. And it lists all these people's names. It lists 38 individuals and 42 groups, and it just says, this person was working next to this person, and this person was working next to this person, and this person. They were working next to this person on that wall. And what you see is this beautiful picture of the body of Christ. Working next to each other. Not in front of or behind or against. Working together, side by side. Working next to one another. And that's how the church works. That's how the body of Christ works that way. One person, no matter how gifted they are, can do the work alone. We need a team. This is a team effort. The kingdom of God is a team. The church is not a spectator sport. So, and another, another cool thing also about chapter three is you don't see ne- Nehemiah's name one time in chapter three. I mean, he was working with them, but he doesn't say, and I was over there doing this, and I was doing that, and I accomplished this. No, he just mentions the people who were there working with him, serving faithfully, getting this job. By the way, also, this wasn't like their job. They went to their normal job to, to support their family and then was doing this on the side. So after work, um, we're going to go rebuild this wall. They're working side by side, hand in hand. Beautiful picture of the body of Christ. Then chapter four comes, we see more opposition shows up, but look what happens in verse uh, 15. Chapter four, verse 15. (laughs) This is funny. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had uh, frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So they're trying to frustrate him, but it says, it says, God frustrated their plan. So if God calls you to something, he has a plan for something, his plan will be accomplished. No matter the opposition, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and against his kingdom work. And so you can bank on that. You're going to face opposition, but just know that the Lord is fighting for you, he's with you, he's equipped you in every way, Uh, keep at it. So skip over to chapter 6, verse 15. So they're building the wall, there's opposition, there's all this stuff going on, but then we see verse 15, finally says this, so so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Okay, they began building this wall. There's opposition. They're working on their jobs. But in 52 days, they rebuild the walls around the temple, around the city. And this wasn't like they were just in their backyard building a little house for their dog, which would take me probably longer than 52 days. They rebuild a whole city wall in 52 days. I feel like if it was, was a Baptist church it takes 52 days to pick out the color of the carpet in the church with three different committees, right? <laughs> These were people with some shovels and some want to really is what it was. Wanting to, to see God do an amazing work and in 52 days the wall was built, that's awesome. So chapters 8 and 9, we see this after construction comes, consecration comes. And Ezra shows up on the scene in chapter 8, and he begins to just read from God's Word. I love this, because this is actually what we're going to kind of allude to a little later. He starts reading from God's Word. He doesn't preach a sermon. He just starts reading God's Word. And guess what? Revival in the hearts of the people break out. Just from hearing God's Word. Revival takes place. Chapter nine says after 24 days, they're they're still confessing sin. I mean, this wasn't just like a Sunday morning, they read and they go, hey, go celebrate. No, chapter nine begins 24 days later, they're still repenting, falling on their face, crying out, confessing sin. Revival is taking place and God is rebuilding his people. Not only physically, but spiritually. So after rebuilding and reviving, we see the resettling. In chapters 11 through 13, um, there's no one living in the city. And so this is also a kind of cool leadership model from Nehemiah. Uh, he wants people to move into the city. And so they take and they cast lots. And uh, they take a tenth of the people and they move families into the city. And they, they begin repopulating uh, the, the city. Chapter 11 is just list those families who are inside the city and outside the city. Chapter 12 lifts all the priests and the Levites who are now returning from captivity. then we get to chapter 13, the last chapter. And if you remember Brandon talking a few weeks ago about the story of a comedy and a tragedy, um, what you see in these three movements of Ezra and Nehemiah is all three movements with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and even Nehemiah, they all end in tragedy. They end a tragedy. So chapter 13 starts in Nehemiah. He goes back to where King Artaxerxes is for a bit and he returns and this is what he sees. He sees that the walls are strong but the people are weak. And here's what happened. During that time after they rebuilt these uh, the walls he came back and he found that they weren't supporting the Levites so the priests no one was financially supporting them no one was helping them. They were breaking the Sabbath. They were working and just going about their day, and then they also were were intertwining and still marrying foreigners, people outside, things that God told them not to do. They just had a spiritual revival, and then some days, weeks, months later, they're already back to where they were. So before I wrap up, before I, I land the plane here, I want to give you four quick things that you can just write down take with you, um, and then I'm going to land the plane here. So if we're going to learn from the life of Nehemiah, which there's a lot to learn from, like I said, there's leadership, um, there's an an, an awesome example of how to pray. matter of fact, the longest prayer recorded in Scripture is from Nehemiah in here. How to trust in God's Word. There's all these great things we can learn from Nehemiah, but I'm going to give you four quick things. If, If we're going to live a life like Nehemiah, used by God. Um, there, here's here's some things we can remember. First, we need to remember, and for our own lives, that Nehemiah had compassion. Nehemiah had compassion. What's interesting about Nehemiah is he wasn't this trained scribe or this seminary graduate. He was just a, a, a simple guy who was working in uh, this working a regular job, if you will. But he was just compassionate about the things of the Lord. Like his heart was already compassionate. As soon as he heard there was a need, it moved him. He was already compassionate. He already had this, this prayer time with the Lord. He already had a, 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 this, this relationship, if, if you will, with the word with, with the Lord. So he was compassionate. second thing, not only was he compassionate, he was also courageous. He was courageous. He was courageous to do what needed to be done. He saw a need and he did it. He didn't say, well, someone else can just take care of that or such and such gets paid to do that, I'm going to let them do that. He saw a need and he was courageous enough to step up and do what needed to be done. He didn't look around and wait for someone else. He was available and he was ready. Not only that, he was courageous to tell the king what was on his heart and he was courageous to go back and to stand against opposition to finish the work that needed to be started. So he was compassionate, he was courageous, but he also had confidence. He had confidence. And I don't mean like, I'm Nehemiah, like, look at me, I'm cool. His confidence was in the Lord, his, his confidence was in the one who was sending and equipping him. And throughout these 13 chapters of this book, what you really see is prayer. Is Nehemiah's reaction to success, opposition, confusion, discouragement, and everything else that he encounters? He, he has his awesome prayer life. And he has this unshakable belief in the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. Not only because it, it, it caused him to uh, direct his own hearts and thoughts immediately to the Lord, but also he inspired those around him to do the same. And he imparted hope and empowering godly living. So he was confident in what the Lord could do. He was compassionate, he was courageous, he was confident, and lastly, what we can learn from him was he was cooperative. He looked for cooperation. He was able to work well with others. He led by example. He never took credit for his leadership. He was just a part of the body of believers and said, hey, come get in on what God's doing. Come join me in this, let's let's work together. Let's see a need. Let's courageously go after it and let's get it done. had cooperation. So, as I'm wrapping up here, as I was studying this, I came across an article um, written by a lady named Christine Hoover. It was just a simple article that I found called um, Rubble to Restoration rubble to restoration and man my heart was just stirred you know they say sometimes the best sermons you preach are the ones that you need to preach to yourself the most and as I was studying preparing for this I had this idea where I wanted to go and up until really last night I think the Lord just stirred in my heart to do something this morning that I've never done uh, I don't know if it's if it's been done. I don't even know if I'm doing it right. If it looks right, I don't know. But I'm reading through this, and I'm reading to this article, and, it, and it's talking about how God takes rubble and restores it spiritually. He's, he, and she's using the example of Nehemiah um, restoring this rubble wall, if you will, seeing this need, but also spiritually what God does. And, In this article, she says, because there was a man also about some 500 years later who stood looking at Jerusalem and also wept at the rubble. Of course, that was Jesus, and he was looking out over Jerusalem. And he he didn't see structures that were in rubble. He saw people that were in rubble, people that were hardened toward God, People that were living religious lives. It looked good on the outside, man. Their walls on the outside looked good. But inside, man, their spiritual walls were in rubble. And uh, I'm reading through Nehemiah. I get to chapter 8 and 9 where we see revival take place. And I don't know that y'all got, y'all, but man, I want God to have a, start a revival in my heart. And I'm reading about Nehemiah being this leader. And he reads God's word, and then this happens in chapter 9. They start confessing sin. Can we be real this morning? I think the church is a place that we should be able to feel comfortable being vulnerable, being open, being honest, being real. And again, I don't know what this looks like, but I just wanna ask God to to do a revival in my heart this morning. That's what he's been doing all week. And he used the book of Nehemiah to do it, which is awesome. But if you look at the history of Christianity really, you see these big movements of revival that take place. These big reformations that take place. And it all starts by people humbling themselves going back to God's word, taking God at his word, taking his word serious, and confessing their sin. So, as a leader, I don't know if you know this, but I don't have it all together. I don't have it all figured out. And God has placed me in in this leadership position, and I feel like sometimes we can put up these These physical walls, if you will, that look good, but inside spiritually, man, our walls are crumbled. And if I'm honest, going through this this week, I was reading this article and I felt like, man, my life is, sometimes feels like a spiritual rubble. Anybody, anybody ever been there? So I want to just, I don't know what this looks like. I just want to publicly confess as a leader that the things that God has placed me in charge of, I haven't been doing like I should. Confession is a good thing. First John 1, 9. Um, we're going to look at that a little bit later. But it says, if you confess your sins before God, it says he is faithful and he is just to forgive us into cleanses of fallen righteousness. And so, as a man, as a pastor, the things that God has placed me in charge of leading—I'm just going to publicly confess—I haven't been leading my wife like I should. I haven't been leading my kids like I should. And I wonder if there's any other men who would stand up right now and, and confess that as well with me. I wonder if there's any spouses who would stand up and say they haven't been loving their husband and their kids like they should. I wonder if there's anyone in here this morning students, parents like Nehemiah who hasn't had this fervent prayer life. Man, my prayer life seems so non-existent sometimes. Anybody would stand and say that? Confess that? Nehemiah loved God's Word. Ezra loved God's Word. They stood on God's Word. Would anybody stand and say they haven't been loving God's Word like they should and heeding to God's Word and falling in love with God's Word? Maybe there's someone here this morning like me. I'm just confessing. I would say there's this sin in our lives that we're still battling, that still has strongholds, this morning I need to stand and just confess that to the Lord this morning you confess your sins the promise in scripture says that God is faithful and it's just forgive us to take this rubble and turn it to a restored life this morning confession begins in here and I want to see revival not only in our hearts but in this city in this church and in this nation and it starts here I really believe that can I pray for us real quick God I want to first thank you for your word this morning God, we stand together in unity and we confess that we haven't been leading like we should. God, we haven't been loving your word like we should. We haven't been praying like we should. God, we still have this sin that we still battle and still entangles. God, we confess that this morning. We lay it at the foot of the cross. Where we find mercy, we find grace, forgiveness. And God, we take you at your word. We know that you take this rubble and you restore it. So God, I pray that you would do that in my life, that you would revive my heart and the lives of these other brothers and sisters standing with me this morning. We confess and we thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you for that mercy and grace. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Thank y'all. As we end this morning, we're going to have a time of response, a song of response. What a good time to sing. Praise God for meeting us where we're at, for taking this rubble that we're standing in, sometimes thinking back to, and restoring us. So I want to challenge believers this morning that you would stand, you would sing, you would celebrate, you would cry out to God, you'd worship Him in spirit and truth. But I also want to talk to people in here this morning who may not know um, or may not know if they have a relationship with with God this morning through Christ and I always want to tell you this there's forgiveness and grace found in Christ alone if you would believe on the gospel this morning his word says that he would save you so I'd love to talk with you about what that looks like as I sing I'm going to be standing in the back I would love to talk with you this morning if God is breaking your heart over something or maybe speaking to you I would love to pray with you Talk with you about salvation or whatever. We have some other pastors on the jacks back there. Cole will be around. Tony may be around. But however the Lord's calling us to respond this morning to what he has done, let's stand and do that now. If you are encouraged by today's talk, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcast. The goal of the venue is to help you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus by being relational, helpful, hopeful, and real. Thanks again for listening to the Venue Podcast.